Good morning. All right. Ohayo gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Always a blessing to gather together as a church family and to worship and praise our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This morning we are going to pick up where we last left off in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 23. Okay, Luke chapter 23. Uh, Two weeks ago we covered the details surrounding Jesus' three religious trials, uh, one before Annas, uh, the former high priest, a second before Caiaphas, the man recognized by Rome as the current high priest, and a third trial that took place at the break of day before the Jewish Sanhedrin, a, a ruling group made up of uh, religious scribes, elders, and priests. And during those trials, the religious leaders sought to find something that they could accuse Jesus of, that they may be able to condemn him to death. You see, they had already come to their sentence. They just needed to find a crime that would fit the sentencing. Initially, they failed. Uh, But eventually, they found Jesus to be guilty of blasphemy because he identified himself as being the Son of God, as being uh, of divine nature and equivalent to God. And normally, this would be considered blasphemy, if not for the fact that Jesus was indeed God, God Almighty in the flesh. He is the great I Am. And just as Jesus stood trial at three religious trials, in like manner, he would stand before three civil or political trials. Last week, we looked at the first two of those trials as Jesus was first presented to Pontius Pilate, the governor or procurator of Judea at the time. Now, the Jews knew that if they accused Jesus of blasphemy before Pontius Pilate, that he would never sign off on such an accusation being worthy of the death penalty. Um, That was a religious matter for them, and he would basically try and say, hey, you guys deal with it on your own terms, right? And so they trumped up false charges against Jesus, claiming that he was basically an insurrectionist, that he perverted the nation, someone that went around telling people not to pay taxes, and that he went around claiming to be a king. And all of these charges, as we noted last week, they were all false in nature. Okay? After questioning Jesus, Pontius Pilate found no reason to put him to death. And he stated very clearly, I find no fault in this man. And seeing their hopes of having Jesus crucified slipping away, the religious leaders became even more fierce in their accusations, claiming that he was a troublemaker going around teaching people all the way from Galilee on up to Jerusalem. And when Pontius Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he decided to try and pawn off Jesus to King Herod Antipas, who was tetrarch of the land of Galilee and happened to be in Jerusalem at the time because of the Passover festivities. And so that's when Jesus faced his second political trial, as he was set before King Herod Antipas, a man who greatly longed to see Jesus because he had heard so much about him, and he actually hoped that Jesus would perform some sort of miracle for him to see. Well, when Jesus was set before Herod, Herod questioned him, 
But Jesus, Jesus, excuse me, answered him not a single word. He remained completely silent before Herod, despite all of the accusations that the religious leaders were throwing out against him. Herod decided to treat Jesus with contempt, mocking him as a king by dressing him up in gorgeous robe that Herod had eventually had, and then Herod eventually sent him back to Pilate. The verdict from Jesus' second political trial, as we'll see in our text this morning, was Herod had found that nothing deserving of death had been done by Jesus. And so two political trials, one before Pontius Pilate, who found no fault in Jesus, and a second before Herod Antipas, who found that Jesus had done nothing deserving of death. And that leads us to our text today, and the third and final political trial Jesus will face. Jesus is going to be set before Pontius Pilate once again for a third political trial, where he will be questioned some more, and Pontius will gather more information before rendering his final verdict. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 25, and the title of our message is going to be The Pardoned Prisoner, okay? The Pardoned Prisoner. Will you all rise to your feet in honor of God and His Holy Word? I'm going to read our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, that's fine. Just want to encourage you all to do your best to follow along in your own Bible as I read from mine. Luke chapter 23, he continues the details of Jesus's political trials with the following in verse 13. It says, Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence... I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas! who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and the opportunity that we have to gather in this place to open up your word and allow your word to to speak to us. Lord, as we look at these details of your son on trial, um, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to obey, eyes to see, 
minds that are open to all that you desire to speak to us, to show us. And so, Lord, we give you this time and we look forward to what you have for us, that we would receive it gladly and allow it to mold and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask and pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In our opening verse uh, this morning, verse 13, we read about how Pilate gathered together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people in order to address them concerning the outcome of what took place after Jesus was sent back to Pilate by Herod. Pilate, as we kind of noted last week, he was playing a game of political hot potato with Jesus. He tried tossing the responsibility to Herod, but Herod simply tossed it back to him. And now it was on him to make a final decision. Now, in the other gospel accounts, we're given a few more details that help to set the stage as to what's going on right now. So we're going to be referencing a little bit in John, a little bit in Matthew and Mark, just to kind of get a full picture of all that's kind of taking place at this time. Jesus was brought to Pilate first thing in the morning, if you guys remember, by the religious leaders. And after hearing the accusations and questioning Jesus and subsequently finding that he was from Galilee, Pilate sent him off to Herod. But it would seem that in the meantime, while Jesus was being sent to Herod to be questioned, that other people started to gather before Pilate to address a separate issue. In verse 17, of our text this morning, there is a parenthetical remark that is given by Luke about the necessity for Pilate to release a prisoner to the people because of the Passover feast. Now, I look at some of you and I see you looking down at your Bibles, okay? I know that for some of you, your Bibles may not have verse 17 in them, okay? And so if you are reading from a, a more modern translation like the uh, NIV or the ESV, your Bible goes straight from verse 16 to verse 18, okay? And doesn't have a verse 17. If your Bible has footnotes or references, it will probably give you the details of verse 17 in the fine print if you look for it. Some of your Bibles may include verse 17, but it's bracketed off, indicating that it isn't found in certain manuscripts. I just want to set your hearts at ease here. There is nothing to be overly concerned about. Okay, this is simply a varying philosophy, philosophy excuse me, on translations. Uh, some Bible translations are based upon the oldest known manuscripts, okay, while other translations are based upon the manuscripts that have the most in common. Okay, so if you can kind of think of it this way, some think that the closer you are to the source, the more reliable. Okay? And so those people will look to the oldest known manuscripts to base their translations off of, even if they don't agree with the vast majority of other more recent manuscripts. And the mindset, you guys have ever played the game telephone, right? Where you kind of whisper something in one person's ear and then we all kind of pass it around. And by the time it gets to the end, it's like not even close to what it originally started out as. And so the people with this mindset have that mindset. We just need to get the oldest known manuscripts that were closest to the source. And those are the ones that we're going to base our translations off of. Make sense? Okay. Well, 
Others take a different approach. Instead of putting the most weight upon the oldest known manuscripts, they value the manuscripts that have the most in common. If they have several copies of manuscripts that all say the same thing, they are going to give them more credence than, say, a single manuscript that is older but differs in some minor parts. And the mindset behind that is like, okay, these people very meticulously copied these manuscripts over and over and over again. And if we have several manuscripts that all say the same thing, and then we find one that's a little bit different, these people are going to say, well, we trust that all of these ones were copied correctly, and maybe this one was not. And so they're going to base their translations off of the manuscripts that have the most in common. If they have several manuscripts that all say the same thing, that's where they're going to put the weight of their translations on. Does that make sense? All right. And so basically that's what's going on here. Okay. It's not something to be overly concerned with. The places where these slight differences are noted do not change the overall message of the gospel. And most Bibles that may not have certain verses in the main body, they'll have them in the footnotes. Okay. So you're not missing anything. We can be sure that what we hold is the inspired word of God and that God has done well to see to it that his main message to us has not been altered or changed at all. We can trust in God's word, in his holy Bible. Back to our text, okay? Back to this need for Pilate to release a prisoner during the Passover feast. We're told in Mark's gospel, that a multitude of people had started to gather before Pilate to ask him to do what he had always done for them before, namely to release a prisoner of their choosing during the Passover feast. Mark chapter 15 verse 8 tells us about this group of people that had gathered before Pilate. This is something that became somewhat of a custom for Pilate to do. Kind of like uh, even today, what happens in our own day and age uh, towards the end of uh, presidential terms where some U.S. presidents will grant a number of pardons during their final days of office. It's kind of become a, a thing. I don't know if you've noticed that trend uh, by presidents uh, in their last few days. Pilate had the power to grant clemency or a pardon to anyone that he wanted to, but he had developed a custom of granting the people the power to choose for themselves who they would like to have released during the Passover festivities. And so a crowd of people had also started to gather together before Pilate at this time to request from him the person they wanted to have released. And so when Jesus was returned to Pilate, without any sort of judgment passed on by Herod, he now needed to figure out what to do with Jesus. He also needed to figure out a way to satisfy the people's desire to have someone released to them as part of the custom pertaining to the Passover feast. And that's when Pilate came up with an idea to try and kill two birds with one stone, right? In Matthew's gospel, we're told that when Pilate had the people gathered together as described in our opening verse, verse 13, that he actually presented to them a choice between two people. Matthew records Pilate as saying, whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ. Matthew continues stating how Pilate knew that they had handed Jesus over because of envy. Instead of giving the people the choice of anyone they wanted, Pilate limited their choice to two people. You can either have Barabbas or you can have Jesus. 
And we're going to get into who this Barabbas is later on in our text when Luke mentions him. But suffice to say, Pilate thought that he had figured out a way to get himself off the hook here. He knew that Jesus was innocent and that the religious leaders had only turned him in because of envy. And so he thought he'd simply stack the deck in his favor and give the people a choice, okay? A choice that he no doubt thought would be a no-brainer, right? These, these two options, there's, there's really not a choice, though he's giving them a choice. And so Pilate gave the people a choice. But in our text, in Luke 23, we see that after giving this option, he lays out the details of his findings along with Herod's in verses 14 and 15. Let's read them for ourselves as we continue our study. It says, Pilate said to them, this is the religious leaders okay, that had gathered together, the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. He says, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. We'll stop right there. So Pilate makes it very clear that he had examined Jesus himself in connection to all the various accusations they had levied against him, and that he had found no fault whatsoever in Jesus. Pilate found Jesus to be faultless, Okay, the ESV reads that Pilate found him to be not guilty. Okay, the NIV reads that Pilate found the charges against Jesus to have no basis okay, whatsoever. So Pilate could find nothing, no cause, no guilt, no reason whatsoever for the charges brought against Jesus. Remember that the charges against him were that he was an insurrectionist who stirred up the people and caused all sorts of political problems. Pilate found nothing to corroborate these claims, and he believed Jesus to be completely innocent. And he also assures the people that Herod, too, came to the same conclusion, that even after Herod questioned him and sent him back, that Herod had found Jesus to have done nothing deserving of death. And that's our first point this morning. Jesus did nothing deserving of death. That is a very powerful statement, okay? That is a powerful statement in light of what we know the scriptures to teach us, because the scriptures teach us that we all deserve death, that the wages of sin is death, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Each and every one of us is, in fact, deserving of death. Yet Jesus did nothing deserving of death. He had committed no sin. He lived his entire life without ever committing a single sin. He was perfect, spotless, without a single blemish upon his record. For some 30 years, he walked this earth and never once did he fall short of the glory of God. Never once did he stumble in sin. He lived a perfect life before the Father and before the people. And some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, yeah, of course he did because he's God, right? He doesn't know what it's like to, to be human, to be bound to these earthly tents. He doesn't know what it's like to be clothed in the flesh and to struggle against the flesh. But that is where you would be wrong. 
Hebrews tells us that in all things, he, referring to Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiations for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted. Later on in chapter 4 of Hebrews, the author further states, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Jesus put on human flesh. He dwelt among us. He lived as one of us. And he experienced the same sort of temptations and struggles that we do. But he never once succumbed to those temptations. He never once gave in to the flesh. He lived a perfect life. And the testimony of Pilate and Herod is sure. He is the only one ever to have done nothing deserving of death. Now, before we move on to what else Pilate had to say, I want to mention the judgment of one other person that's recorded for us in Matthew's gospel. Luke doesn't record it, but during this time in our text, in Matthew's gospel, we're told that as Pilate sat upon the judgment seat preparing what he would say and waiting for the decision of the people, that word was sent to him by an unexpected source someone he probably least expected to hear from during this situation, it was his wife, a woman that history tells us was named Claudia Procula. In Matthew 27, verse 19, we read the following. While he, referring to Pontius Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. We must recall that this is still somewhat early in the morning when all of this is happening. Pontius Pilate was called out by the religious leaders first thing in the morning around 6 a.m. And evidently, Claudia, Pilate's wife, was wakened by a dreadful dream she had. And as she awoke, she sought out her husband only to find that his business as procurator had called him out to duty. When she inquires for more information she finds out that the very man that is set before her husband is the man that was in her dream. Within this dream, Claudia suffered many things because of Jesus Christ. We don't know the details of the dream, but we know that it was vivid enough of a dream that it caused her to not only remember it, but to actually act upon it. And so word comes to Pontius Pilate. While he's sitting at the judgment seat from his wife that she has suffered many things in a dream because of this man, and she offers to Pilate some advice. She says, have nothing to do with that just man. The word just in the Greek, it's the word dikaios, dikaios, excuse me. Uh, The word's more commonly translated as righteous, in our Bible. It is a word used to describe someone who is in accordance with God's compelling and holy standards. Claudia was given divine inspiration through a dream that Jesus was a just man, a righteous man, one who lived in accordance to God's holy standard, and she begged her husband to not have anything to do with him. And so here Pilate is with a decision to make 
He's found Jesus faultless. Herod has declared that Jesus has done nothing deserving of death. And his own wife was even given a dream, insisting and instilling within her the conviction that this was a just and righteous man. What would Pilate do? Let's read verses 16 and 17 to hear his decision. He says, I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. Despite knowing Jesus' innocence and that he did nothing deserving of this treatment, Pontius Pilate decides that he will simply chastise Jesus and then release him to the people as part of the custom of releasing a prisoner to the people. He'd given them a choice between Barabbas and Jesus, but here he declares his intention to chastise Jesus and release him, thinking that this will be the end of it all, that he can finally move on. Well, let's read what happens next in verse 18 and 19. It says, And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. To the shock of Pilate, the people all cried out, Away with this man and give or release to us Barabbas. Now, the terminology used here is quite significant. The Greek word translated away, it carries the sense of to terminate, to end, to take out, kill, or murder, to eliminate. And it literally means to take up or to raise or to lift up, signifying their ultimate desire to see Jesus lifted up upon a Roman cross through crucifixion. When the people cried out, away with him, they were demanding that Jesus be lifted up upon a cross and executed. Instead of receiving Jesus, they rejected him and the people called out for Barabbas. Now, according to Mark's gospel, we're told that this wasn't necessarily the first inclination of the people. Mark's gospel tells us that the chief priests actually stirred up the crowd so that Pilate should rather release Barabbas to them than to have Jesus released. Okay? Matthew's gospel says similarly, it tells us that the chief priest and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Why was it necessary to persuade the people? Why did the chief priest have to stir the people up in order to get them to choose Barabbas over Jesus? Because Barabbas was a really, really bad dude, okay? He was a bad guy. And, and no one in their right mind would choose Barabbas. Here in Luke's gospel, we're given a little bit of background on Barabbas. We're told that he had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder, This man was an insurrectionist, a terrorist, if you will. John's gospel also describes him as a robber in John chapter 18, verse 40. Matthew's gospel says of him that he was a notorious prisoner, meaning that he, what he did was well known. He was infamous for his rebellion and his thievery and his murderous acts. 
It was for these reasons that Pilate no doubt chose Barabbas to pit against Jesus. Because who in their right mind would want a notorious terrorist known for his thievery and murderous deeds let loose from prison and released into their community? No one's going to make that choice. And so he says, I'll give you a choice. You can choose Barabbas or Jesus. No one would choose Barabbas, right? That's what Pilate was banking on, at least. It is astounding to consider the hypocrisy and the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders here. The accusations they tried to bring to Pilate regarding Jesus were basically, hey, we want this guy killed because he is an insurrectionist that stirs up trouble. He steals from Rome by not paying taxes, and he's a political threat by claiming to be a king. But when actually put up next to one who basically fits that description to a T and then some in Barabbas, they want to have Barabbas released. They want to have Jesus killed because they falsely claim that he's a rebel, that he's a thief, and a political terror. But they want to have Barabbas, who really is a rebel, a thief, a political terrorist, and even a murderer, released. Their actions make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Let's read Pilate's response to their cries in verse 20. It says, Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again cried out to them. Here we're told in verse 20 that Pilate was wishing to release Jesus, and then he cried out to the people again, dumbfounded, no doubt, at their response for their wanting Barabbas. Luke doesn't record for us what he cried out to the people after their initial request to have Barabbas released to them, but Matthew's gospel tells us that he questioned the people, asking them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is the Christ, or who's called Christ. And we get their response in verse 21 of our text. But they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Crucify him. Can you imagine hearing that echo? Crucify him, crucify him. You know, less than five days ago, the multitudes were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save now. But now the multitudes are crying out, crucify him, crucify him. What happened? Now, it isn't the chief priest that had a change of heart. They weren't part of the multitudes crying out, Hosanna. But this group before Pilate consisted of not just the religious leaders that had come against Jesus, but also a large group of the normal populace of the people who had come out as part of the traditional custom of celebrating the release of one of their own. It was these people that the religious leaders persuaded. It was these people that the religious leaders had to stir up to get them to choose Barabbas. They were led astray by these religious leaders and led to believe that it was a better decision to have a murderous terrorist released to them than to have their own Messiah released to them. How sad. It is so sad to see people blindly following others that couldn't care less about their own well-being and were leading them in deception. Church family, I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you 
Please be careful. Please be careful. Do not be misguided or led astray. Because there are all sorts of movements out there in today's day and age and people of persuasion, people who are on the spotlight and on TV and whatnot that are promoting stuff and championing things that are completely contrary to what God's Word clearly teaches. Do not take the bait, okay? Do not allow yourself to be persuaded into thinking that these supposed leaders... These people of persuasion know what's best. Test things against God's word, okay? Look to the Lord to see what is true and what we should follow after. We need God's word to lead us and guide us, not what's trending on social media, not what's happening in today's ever-changing culture, okay? We look to God's word for our leading and our guiding, and we test things against God's word, okay? Let's read Pilate's response, what happened next, verse 22 and 23. Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of, their chief, of the chief priests prevailed. Pilate responds to the people asking, why? Again, he's, he doesn't get it. Why would you want to kill Jesus? Why would they want him to be crucified? He asks, why? What evil has he done? And the answer is that he has done no evil whatsoever. Hey, he committed no wrong. There was nothing that he did that was deserving of his death. Again, Pilate tries to reaffirm his finding that he had found no reason for death in him, and he attempts to suggest a compromise of sorts. Pilate, in trying to appease the people, states that he will therefore chastise Jesus and then let him go. Pilate hoped that giving Jesus a beating would be enough to satisfy the masses. Though he wasn't deserving of such treatment, Pilate was willing to do so in hopes that they would relent that that would satisfy him. Okay, you know, I'll, I'll give him a few lashings, a few whippings, and then I'm going to release him. And, you know, they'll see his uh, broken body and think that's sufficient. But the people rejected the proposal. They became insistent, verse 23 says, and they demanded with loud voices that he be crucified. And sadly, we are told that the voices of these men and the voices of the chief priests prevailed. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Pilate was in a, a pickle here, right? He knew Jesus was innocent. He had found no fault in him at all. He had sent Jesus to Herod to have him deal with him, but to no avail. Herod simply sent him back, saying he found that he had done nothing deserving of death. His own wife was telling him not to have anything to do with him. He's tried three times now to release Jesus to the people, but they keep on clamoring for his crucifixion. And Pilate could tell that he was moments away from a tumult 
rising and chaos spreading throughout the streets of Jerusalem. Last week we mentioned the fact that Pontius had been given some warnings by the higher-ups in Rome. And we know and understand that he was already on a short leash with the higher-ups in Rome and that his power and position were on the line should there be another major incident in Jerusalem under his watch. And so, Pilate succumbed to the cries of the people. He gave in to their demands and he tried to wash his hands of it. But the truth of the matter is that no washing of the hands would remove the stain of Pilate's decision. Pilate will forever be remembered as the one who sentenced Jesus Christ to be crucified. He is remembered as a man who lacked the strength and the conviction to make a stand for what he knew to be right. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that he had done nothing deserving of death. He knew that the religious leaders had only handed him over in the first place because they were envious of him. He knew the people were making a bad choice in choosing Barabbas over Jesus, but he did not stand upon what he knew to be true. Why? Because it was going to cost him. He feared what he might lose out on if he should make a stand. His power, his position, his political career all hung in the balance. And Pontius Pilate decided it was better to do what he believed to be safe than to do what he knew to be right. And Pilate stands as a warning to us all. Will we stand for Jesus and our convictions when faced with opposition? Will we stand for what is right when everyone else is crying out for what is wrong? Will we make a stand for Jesus when all else are wanting nothing to do with him? Will we stand for Jesus and our convictions knowing that it may cost us our jobs, our careers, our power, our position. We need to make up our minds now that we will stand. No matter what others say, no matter what others may do, that we will stand for Christ and we will not allow ourselves to fall prey to the fear of man. You see, Pilate feared man more than he feared God and it would end up costing him everything. Don't make the same mistake. Make up your mind now that you will stand for Christ and not fear man. May I encourage you, God is with you. God is with us and he will strengthen us as we stand for him. Psalm 118 verse 6 states, the Lord is on my side. The Lord is on your side. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, in the grand scheme of things, there is nothing that man can do to us that doesn't first pass before our Heavenly Father. God will prepare us for what comes our way. He will fight with us and He will fight for us if we will stand for Him. Trust in His promises, you guys, and watch Him do amazing things. Make a stand for Jesus. Let's read verses 24 and 25. We'll wrap up our study this morning. 
says, so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Pilate, he gave in to the people's demands. He sentenced Jesus to be crucified, which would also include him being scourged. Uh, We'll talk more about that later on in subsequent studies. And he released to them the one they requested, Barabbas. And I want to draw your attention to something very important here regarding the release of Barabbas and the exchange that takes place. Barabbas was a rebel, okay? He was a thief and he was a murderer. He was guilty of breaking many laws and by all accounts, he was deserving of death. Jesus, on the other hand, was the Christ, the Son of God. He was generous and compassionate. He was a giver of life both physical and spiritual. He was faultless, without sin, and perfect. And he is the only one ever to walk this earth in human form, not deserving death. And yet, Barabbas is the pardoned prisoner, and Jesus is the one sentenced to death. You would think that Jesus would be the one to earn Pilate's pardon, right? Pilate knew him to be innocent. He he knew he was faultless. He knew he did nothing deserving of death. Yet Pilate chose to pardon Barabbas and sentence Jesus to die. And we think to ourselves, we think, how can this be? I, I don't get it. And this makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And we think that, right? We think, man, this makes no sense. At first at least. But then the more we think about it, the more we realize that this really is a story, not just about Barabbas, but about all of us. You see, we are Barabbas. We are the pardoned prisoner. The the name Barabbas, it literally means Son of daddy. Okay? Normally, Jewish men were named after their father. We know Peter was referred to as Simon Bar Jonah. Bar means son of. Jonah is Simon Peter's dad. And so often people would be known, you know, you know I would be Glenn Bar Glenn because my dad's name is Glenn, but, you know, or Perry Bar Perry, right? Or, you know, like, <laughs> but you would know your father's name based upon what they called you, Bar, whatever. But this is just Bar Abbas, Bar Daddy, an unknown, unnamed daddy. He could have been anybody's son. And that, I think, is part of the story. For Barabbas represents us all. Barabbas could have been any one of us. We, like Barabbas, are guilty of breaking God's law. We are the rebel that has rebelled against God. We are the thief and the murderer. We are the ones who are deserving of death. 
And yet we are the pardoned prisoner. Why? Because Jesus was sentenced to die in our place. We deserve death, but Jesus chose to give us life by surrendering his own life. Barabbas was released only because Jesus was sent to the cross. If Jesus doesn't get sent to the cross, you guys, Barabbas no doubt ends up upon the cross. No doubt in my mind. Barabbas was the pardoned prisoner because Jesus took his place. And likewise, we too are the pardoned prisoners because Jesus took our place upon the cross of Calvary. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 states, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin for us. He took upon himself our punishment when he went to the cross. He took our place upon the cross. He paid our debt for us. You see, Jesus Christ may not have deserved to die, but as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as our propitiation for sins, he had to die. He may not have deserved to die, but he does deserve our worship. He does deserve our praise. He does deserve our complete surrender. He deserves our everything. That we would give to him all praise, honor, and glory. For he is the only one that is worthy of it. I pray that we will live for Jesus. That we will constantly be reminded of the gift of grace that has been bestowed upon us through his death. And that we would honor him in the new life that he's granted to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him to take our place. Lord, we are the Barabbas. We are the pardoned prisoner because you sent your son to take our place. And it's only because he took our place, Lord, that we have this opportunity to worship you. We have this opportunity to have a relationship with you, to have his righteousness accredited to our account, that we could stand before you, our Abba Father, because of what he did for us. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you, Lord, and we give to you all that we could. We give to you our lives give to you our praise, give to you all honor and glory, for you truly are worthy of it all. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.